In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Well, great. Hi, how are you? Hey, I'm pretty good. How are you? Good. What have you been up to? We have been binge watching a lot of shows, um, playing video games, working from home, you know, mm-hmm. doing the best we can to entertain ourselves at home. I've been reading um, a lot. And are you still reading the N.K. Jemison book that your uh, reading group is reading? Yes, um, we are about we're a little more than halfway through and there's still a lot of unanswered questions, but um, it's a three part book so yeah i mean there's three books in the series so that makes sense but um and are you still liking it yeah i actually i'm liking it more and more as it goes on there's a lot of uh cool things on unfurling you know there's a lot of interesting parallels to other fantasy series and there's also a lot of interesting parallels to like the current state of our country so it's really Uh um it's it's very similar to the to the wheel of the time and series that we're reading in our other podcast in that it has um you know an interesting take on those who can like use magic and how they're looked at by other people Mm -hmm. interesting things like that that parallel but one of the interesting things i'm noticing is there's a a group of people in this book that are just by virtue of being born as they are mm-hmm. that are looked at as less than other people. Um, mm. and they are told from birth by the, like by media, by, or, you know, the version of media in the book by, you know, how information gets around that they are like less than that. They are dangerous and that they need to be like handled and controlled. And they are because of this, they're not the ones in power. They're the ones who are being oppressed. They're the ones who are being managed by everybody. And they be- they believe it to their core. And it's mm-hmm, just interesting mm-hmm. to the kind of power system we see in our own country and how that's played out over the years. And I'm looking forward to reading it. It's As I said, it's on my list. But Yeah, I saw it at your house last time it was over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's on my pile of books to read, which is ever-growing and rarely... Uh... Do I make it the kind of progress that I want to be making on it? Yeah, yeah. And that book, by the way, is called The Fifth Season. For anyone right. out there who didn't <laughs> listen to me talk about it on another uh, episode of this or the other podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. How about you? What's uh, what's going on in your world? Well, I would say probably the, um, the newest thing that I've been listening to or new media. Okay, so two things. One is silly and one is not silly. So I've been watching Pen15, as I told you. Oh, yeah. You recommended it to me many times. Yes. And it's definitely very enjoyable. I definitely like the two main characters. It's uh, a very funny and relatable show that talks about kind of middle school and all uh. of the tensions and awful things that happen in middle school. Exactly. So. Particularly middle school, like in the nineties. Yes. You yes. know, like, Oh my gosh. It's, it's very, for folks who are, you know, in their mid to late thirties at this point, will definitely relate to a lot of the material in pen 15. So, Oh yeah. Highly, it's I, so funny. Yeah. Highly recommend that. The other thing I've been listening to is, so I think I told you during quarantine, I 
finished My Favorite Murder and then just immediately started back over again and started from episode one and listened all the way again through episode. I think there's like 240 episodes now. Yeah. Oh my God. So I listened to all of them again. (laughs) I love that. And I finished it again um, uh, like two days ago. And there, I've kind of been listening to it as a, like, it's just nice to hear their voices. It's nice to hear their chatter. Like I've heard the stories before. And so it's not like, oh yeah, like definitely there are stories that I really enjoyed listening to and find really interesting. And, you know, with 200 episodes, I forget things from the early episodes. So it was kind of nice to go back and re-listen to everything. Yeah. But it's just kind of, it's almost like having people you just enjoy being in the room with, in Mm -hmm. the room with you. And so it's just been kind of like a nice, like backing track to my life over the last couple of months. But so I finished it two days ago and was kind of like, well, do I do I just start over again? Like, it just felt like too much to do it again immediately. I think last time I finished, I listened to a few other podcasts in between, some more, like, true crimey ones, like To Live and Die in L.A. and Up and Vanished, and I forget, some of the other ones you recommended to me. Yeah. And I tried listening to a couple of different ones that uh, people were recommending online. I tried listening to Spooked, which is kind of just eerie stories about... Mm -hmm people like people telling the kind of creepy things that have happened to them in their lives. And it's interesting. I I enjoy it, but it's definitely not the kind of listen you were looking for. Yeah. Cause I usually listen to podcasts like in the evening, I'll kind of just put them on and like play video games or relax or whatever. And like really scary stories, like intention, like ones that are edited to like create the ambiance of suspense and fear and anxiety in you is not really the kind of podcast that I'm looking for like late at night when it's dark (laughs) and I'm like maybe by myself. So I started listening to the Brene Brown podcast that you've recommended and that uh, Karen and George on My Favorite Murder have recommended. And I like it. I, 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 will admit I don't really know Brene Brown's work like I've heard her name a million times and ironically I think I like talk about a lot of the same concepts a lot yes of of like vulnerability and things like that and so it it felt very familiar to me and uh the first episode where she's sort of talking to just really to herself and she was talking about what she calls FFTs fucking first times (laughs) and how they you know, make us really uncomfortable because we haven't done this before. And so we should expect that it will be, you know, difficult or hard or unpleasant. And we have to like name that, recognize that we've done hard things before for the first time and that we've, you know, gotten through them. She has like a a three-step process for dealing with those things. And I, I forget what they are off the top of my head. I should probably go back and listen to it because I think it's things that my therapist has also said to me. But uh, I really liked her interview with Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement. That is one of Uh, my favorite episodes. It's so good. I I really, I'm in the middle of the episode with Glennon Doyle Mm -hmm. right now. And it's not, I'm not relating to it as much as I did with the Tarana Burke one. Because they're they're often talking about like motherhood in this episode. And I don't have any children, so I don't really connect to it. But I think it's really valuable for people, especially women who... Uh, you know, have had to deal with a lot of the uh, pressures placed on them about being selfless and being mothers and not really getting to be themselves and have, you know, their own identity outside of being, you know, a mother, a wife, etc. 
Yeah. And so I I definitely like it's a it's a really great podcast, I think, for just I don't know. I I've been talking to I've been having a lot of conversations lately with people at work and like you and and Miles lately about kind of like how scary and unsafe the world feels generally right now. Yeah. And I think it's really easy to get like wrapped up in the the fear of that and the anxiety of that and to try to to like want to like put up walls and ignore things and protect yourself and how how much that limits you from being able to connect with other people and how much like strength there is in talking openly about how scary things are and how afraid we feel or how anxious we are is like really a very strengthening thing to be that kind of open and vulnerable with people. And so I'm enjoying listening to this podcast because it's just like, it's kind of topics that sort of like get to the center of humanity in some ways that is a nice like recentering of of what matters and what my values are. And it kind of like restores a little bit of hope I think it in totally me somehow. Does. I can so. totally see that. It's like healing. It's like something that yeah. is the thing I love about that podcast is that, and it's so funny that you mentioned my favorite murder and this podcast because the only other two things I was going to mention have to do with those two podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you would like hit the nail on the head with with what you said. It's right now. It's the kind of thing that I remember. I used to um, back in the day when I used to go to Weight Watchers and I used to go to the meetings and all that. Uh, I had this one person who I really connected with that was uh, like the leader. Uh-huh. And she said this one thing one time about what we need to be doing for ourselves, like outside of the whole just trying to lose weight thing in mm-hmm. order to like, you know, facilitate us losing weight and getting other good things in our life. And she just said, like, you need to be doing things that nurture your spirit and that yeah. nurture you and that nourish you as well. And I always just loved that. Like when I think about what I need, I feel like, and that's what I think about this podcast and things I need right now with the way the world is like, yeah, I need to be nurtured and I need things that nourish me and that fulfill me and make me feel whole. Mm-hmm. And that's why I try to like manage my time on social media in general, yeah, but especially yeah. right now, because I can, you know, I like to, I can get down with the, like looking at all the crazy things that are going on in the world in like a funny type of way. I can do the, the hard work of looking at the awful things that are going on in the world and like facing them and, and trying to figure out what we can do to change them. I can't deal with the like the anger and viciousness of people towards each other on social media about these topics like that kind of stuff i can't take that in too much and so but it's everywhere you know it's everywhere everyone is just criticizing each other on how they're handling this and how they're not handling that what you believe and i just need things that like nurture me and so that's what i feel like this podcast with Brene brown is is because it's it feels like I'm speaking to somebody who I trust, who is, I, I, I trust this person. I believe what they're saying is like in line with how I feel and how I believe and how I'd like to see my life and see the world. Mm-hmm. And so that is the sort of like nur- nurturing part of it. But I also see right. her as like a relatable person and someone who yes. is like, you know, I mean, her work is all in vulnerability. And I feel like she says always that she's not, 
great at vulnerability herself, but I think yeah. in doing the podcast she is. And so it makes me like trust her even more. Like it doesn't feel like she's telling me how to live my life. It doesn't feel like she's telling me like what I have to do in order to get from A to B. It feels mm-hmm. like the people that she's talking to and she's interviewing people, like me and her are sitting next to each other, like experiencing it together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. It, it feels like a real conversation that you're a part of. And that's what I really like about that. And it reminds me of what you said about My Favorite Murder and like how I feel about listening to their podcast. I like that I feel mm-hmm. I'd like it to be a soundtrack sort of, you know? Yes. Yeah. When I would drive Lyft back when I was doing that, it was like all I listened to all the time. And I would have, get so disappointed when I have to pause it <laughs> and put music <laughs> on to put someone in the car. And I would be like looking forward to dropping the person off to pick up where I left off because I just, it comforted me driving late at night by myself. And, uh, you'd think like I'm listening to murder, a murder podcast (laughs) late at night by myself and it's comforting, but it is because you're, you're in the, like, it feels like you're in the room with people that, that, you know, that get you, that you understand. And there's a, there's a comfort in that. And there's a connection, you know, that you, you get to people. There is. And I think it's so funny because Karen and Georgia, they typically talk about this at their live shows, I think, because there there have been a couple episodes early on where people reacted negatively to the combination of true crime and comedy being like coexisting simultaneously. And I think what's so comforting about shows like My Favorite Murder are, you know, there are horrible things that happen in this world that continue to happen, that will continue to happen. And we can't all, we can't only be stuck in a place of fear and anger about it we have to find ways of not moving on but moving forward in acknowledging that these things happen and processing the ways that they make us feel and what i love about them is that they're they're the element of comedy that they introduce to it is a way to talk about these hard things in a way that makes it less just you know, like emotionally triggering and stuck in the awfulness and and gruesomeness. And it's a way to deal with it and, and move forward in life. And I think that that's such a important thing for people to do, because you were talking about like online with social media and how you can't deal with the people being angry, you know, with each other and arguing over things. We definitely have to find like the coping strategies that work for us in, especially in this pandemic period and, and everything that's, that's happening in the world. And I think that being able to have these moments of lightness in moments of like really a lot of darkness um are important and they're they're helpful for being able to just keep going right and it's not about like make it like they always say in their podcast it's not about laughing at the crime or laughing at the these awful things that are happening it's these awful things are happening we're talking about them and we can still find joy in life right and that's one of the things that I I think we've approached this podcast in a in a similar way of you know be having levity and you know trying to make each other laugh and trying to make any listeners laugh while also talking about some really awful things that are happening and I and I think that's a way to to do it without it feel with to engage with those kinds of conversations and engage with topics of like racism and homophobia and crime and and murder um, and talk about all of those hard things and and pull apart some of the sort of like social patterns that happen within those things 
while also being able to function in the world. Yeah, because that's, I don't remember if it's um, in My Favorite Murder or in one of these other podcasts or even if we've talked about it, but it's, or maybe it was in therapy, but I think it's kind (laughs) of like (laughs) the world at large right now feels like a, like a pressure cooker. Yeah. And especially like when you break it down and start looking at what's going on in the world today, the violence against black people, the awful way that we are seeing a lot of law enforcement behave and the way we're seeing the justice system being used against people. And just when you really look at like, it's really just like this pressure cooker and talking about it and especially talking about it with, I think that compassion and levity can absolutely live in the same space. And so like having both of those, live in the same space in your conversations with people about it and around it and like about true crime i think it it's like just releasing a little bit of that steam like pressing that little button on the pressure cooker and it's just like yeah. okay okay it it doesn't make things okay but it normalizes conversations that need to be happening it you know conversation we these are the kinds of conversations we should have been happening should have been having should continue to be having just because they're difficult doesn't mean we don't have them and they're necessary and so talking about true crime even like the people who whose stories aren't being told who don't deserve to be forgotten their their voices matter and their names matter and that's why a big part of what i love about true crime is you know, finding out who were these people, how were they treated? How can we avoid doing this to people in the future? How how do we play a part in it? How do I take in media and how do I view suspects of crimes? How do I, do I have, um, like, does my internal bias kick in? Am I seeing people in a correct way? So I really love true crime because it really makes me take a look at the world, but also like myself and how I mm-hmm. look at the, how I look at, really the world in, at large and, and people and human nature. So I think it's really, really important to have these kinds of conversations and to, you know, be able to have them in a way that feels comfortable and normal and easy because you can't treat everything with kid gloves all the time and, and avoid it and, and not talk about it and hope that things get better because clearly no. look where we are. So, yeah. So item number one is since we recorded our last podcast, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Uh. And um, we're hearing, which is, you know, sad. She did a lot of great things. There are also very fairly criticisms of things that she did, but she mm-hmm. did protect a lot of people and she did uh, try to be a voice for, you know, liberal progression in some areas. And so it's it's sad to, um, it, it, I think it's news that has kind of scared a lot of people, especially because everything so political feels so high stakes already. Yeah. And um, particularly for people who feel um, most vulnerable in society. And she, I think for a lot of people, represented a sort of bastion of protecting people from um, being, um, having their... Liberties and rights taken away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. And so I just wanted to say that this, so these first five episodes are coming out on October 1st, and we are just a month away from the presidential election. And so if you 
haven't registered to vote, please register to vote. Please vote if you're registered. Um, you know, I, I've seen, I'm, I try not to be too alarmist with politics. Um, that is especially challenging right now because <laughs> I feel like there is a lot at stake, particularly democracy. There are people who are legitimately concerned that we are uh, moments from a political coup. And so what I would say is that uh, a lot of people are emphasizing like, hey, you know, Biden might not be your top choice for a political candidate, but um, and he may not be progressive or liberal enough for you, but he is somebody who believes in democracy and he is somebody who believes in the like freedoms afforded by democracy. And so uh, he might not be your favorite person on the planet, but voting for him is a vote for maintaining the uh, system of democracy that we, in theory, value in this country. And so please vote and uh, please make your voice heard because it's really, really essential. And if you think your vote doesn't matter, it absolutely does because, you know, you'll be voting for a lot more things than just a president. You will be voting for the future of the Congress and the Senate and, uh, you know, judges elected and all of those sorts of things. So remember all of the things that are at play in participating in politics and go, go vote. Yeah, please, please <laughs> go vote and encourage your friends and loved ones to vote and anyone you know in your own communities, in your own worlds, your own people, your own like people you hold close to you, encourage them to vote, talk to people about it, ask your friends if they're registered to vote, ask your friends how they're voting, just get the conversation going. I think it's really, really the most important election I've ever you know, yeah. been alive to witness. So, yeah. On a lighter note, I realized yesterday, uh, or maybe the day before, but I was saving it to tell you for the recording, <laughs> there is a very important guest star in the very first episode of Law & Order that we did not notice. Are you serious? I am not kidding you. You will never believe when I tell you that the girl who died in the hospital, the one who's sort of meant to represent Libby Lib Zion yeah. from that case, yeah. is Erica Jane from The Real Housewives. <gasps> Are you shitting me? No. Oh. And she comes back in a later episode, so she's in the series twice. I'm going to pass out. I'm absolutely going to pass out. I can see it. Like, I can see... I could see the girl in the hospital bed's profile as she's like got the um, all the nurses around her, and I could see yeah. it. I can see yeah. it because she Erica has um, kind of a unique nose. There's something about her nose that's like very distinctive. Mm -hmm. um, and so the minute I like happened upon, I think I was on like the Real Housewives subreddit or something, and somebody pointed out that she was in an episode of Law and Order, and I was like, oh, I wonder if it's one of the ones that we've watched. And I was like, oh my god, it was the first episode. I can't believe I missed this. Oh my god. If we can so, get her on the show. Oh, just talking about her her one like five-minute scene in Law and Order. And then, well, she said she comes back again, right? Oh, so yeah, she I comes back know. to somebody else. Yeah. I want to know yeah. what it was like the first and second time. I just want to chat with her. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be like, dear Erica, please tell us this story from 35 years ago. Oh, my oh, Wait, gosh. not even. Wait, 1990. Oh, 30 years ago. Yeah? I right? guess. Yeah, okay. Anyway, wow. I just I it was a a little uh little tidbit that I had to share that I Mind stumbled upon. Blowing. By the way, uh this is ripped from the headlines. 
<laughs> I don't even want to say how far in we are on recording because I'm sure we're yeah. going to cut it down. But probably uh, not by much. Honestly. I know, I know. Well, listen, this is important. This is why you're yeah. here, right? It is. You've gotten is four episodes through, so. You yeah, like us. You made it now, this right? far. Listen, you made it this far. You might as well listen to all our episodes for the rest of the um rest of time. For the uh, Yeah, for the rest of time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um so uh you probably know why you're here by now. Ripped from the Headlines is a fact and fiction podcast that recaps episodes of Law and Order and talks about the true crimes that inspired the show. And I am N and I am Matt. And uh, each week, one of us recaps the episode and the other researches the true crime and the other person doesn't know what the true crime is. And this week, Matt is recapping the episode and I am talking about the true crime. So, Matt, should we dive in? Yeah, let's let's, uh, you know, away we go here. So we are on season one, episode five of Law and Order. And the title of the episode is Happily Ever After. You know, not the most fun. Ep- We've had a lot of like puns. We have the, had puns, time, yes. But yeah. And I will say I, you know, have watched the episode a few times through. I have no idea. No idea what the true crime is relating to this one. So you com- watched it a couple times. Well, yeah, because I like to watch it one time through first before I actually take notes on it. Oh, OK. So like wow. when, I'm, when I'm doing the true crime that when I'm not doing the true crime, if I'm just researching the true crime. I'll just watch it You'll once. You'll just watch it. Yeah. But if I'm recapping the episode, I like to watch it through once first, just to like get my initial thoughts, so that when I'm re-watching it, it's easier for me to focus on writing notes. Oh, okay. I, I can see I that. cannot I, do two at the same time. It's hard. I like I do a lot of like pause, take a note, pause, take a note, yeah. like every few seconds when I'm recapping the episode. But maybe I'll try that next time because it probably takes less time. I don't know. I also pause at parts too, though, just to like get my thoughts down. Anyway, just my creative process for everyone who doesn't give a shit. <laughs> little little peek into a little behind the scenes uh, material Ooh. for you all today. <laughs> yeah. Anywho, so the beginning of the episode, it's a late evening in New York City. Um, we're outside and a couple in a Lincoln are approaching a parking garage. As the attendant asks if it was a good night, he's like, I don't know why that even happened, by the way. Right from the beginning, I was confused. He's like, oh, good night, just because it's late, I guess. I don't know. It was strange, yeah. But they're like, uh, you know, they're arriving home, and the older man in the car says to the attendant, all parties are good between 12 and 3, or something like that. Uh, That was very strange as well. Yeah, it was a very strange, like, I get it later on, kind of, but, like, I think they're just trying to show that these people are very, like, the environment outside is like the streets of New York City, like how you how you see them generally, like people, a bustling yeah. group of people walking by, people kind of like hanging around, kind of like shady characters, and then this like really fancy looking couple in a Lincoln. yeah, like they, it looks like they came from the opera, but right. but then they're saying parties between twelve and and they're like she's wearing like a velvet ball gown. It's yeah. very strange. It yeah. does not make any sense. No, so they drive on and. uh as the car exits view, there's a man on the street in like dirty clothes and he looks around kind of suspiciously and then enters the stairwell of the same parking garage and he's like sneaking down and he goes to reach into his pocket and the scene cuts. Um, and we're back to the couple 
and he's opening the door for his wife. What a gentleman. They're both dressed really well, like you said. Uh, they clearly have money, and Law & Order is like not at all subtle about trying to convey certain things. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like... They speak with like this, like, it's not an accent, but it's like an affect, you know? Yes. Like, oh, oh, like she's like, oh, the flowers in the back. It's just, yeah. you know, they're not subtle at all about it. But yeah, I mean, these people exist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> these people yeah. are real in real life. So, I mean, I know people like that. I have met them. So <laughs> as he lets her out of the car, again, she asks, oh, the flowers in the back seat. And he opens the door and the scene cuts back outside to the attendant who's kind of talking to like a ragtag group of people. Um, there's these two women on the street with him and then all and oh, I wrote, I wrote there's two women on the street with him and there's a heavy New York accent dripping from oh every God. word. Yes. It's like grease from like an Italian sub dripping. Oh, I immediately thought of uh, Joe Pesci and um, Marissa oh, Tomei oh, oh, in uh, My, uh, Cousin, My Cousin, Vinny. Cousin Vinny. Yes. yes. It's so like... <laughs> ridiculously thick with these people yes yeah but i will say um like they're getting it a little bit better they're getting a little bit better as the uh season's gone on with the the affects because marginally uh, yeah <laughs> but anyway so they're all having this like really like fun moment outside and it's all broken up because you feel you hear gunshots and everyone turns back towards the parking garage and uh, a police car that's sort of like patrolling nearby just happens to be in the area. So it pulls up and the male and female police officer, they get out of the car and they they're approaching into the parking deck. And oh I just God. I okay. have to describe the scene. Are you going to describe <laughs> the way they held their guns and the way they ran? Yes. Oh, God. Thank you. OK, I'm so glad <laughs> this is the way they're approaching the crime scene on foot. The male. <laughs> she's running like she's like a cross between like a baby deer and like a middle school librarian. Uh huh. And she's got her arms up in the air. Like she's the statue of Liberty. I don't, I guess it's so bizarre. And he is running down. Like he's dribbling a basketball. His hand is out <laughs> and everything. <laughs> it's uh, she, it looks like they were mannequins brought to life. Uh, yes. Like, but they like, like were stuck in a weird position. And then they said, okay, mannequins run. Like it's really weird. It looks like someone grabbed them from off the street and was like, listen, we're filming a show. We need two cops. We didn't think about this. Just, can you do it? And they're like, uh, sure. <laughs> they look very unsure. So I'm glad you noticed they're like very individual gates because I certainly yes. did. Um, in any event, they arrive at the scene and both victims are lying on the ground motionless and there's blood on the floor and, uh, the man at least is already dead. We get, and then we come to the credits, no sassy lines like usual, no, no. deep moment, just right, right to it. I was like, okay. Yeah. Um, and I know we've mentioned this in the past, but the opening credits are very long. They're really long. Very, and I'm like, the more, I'm noticing it more and more, but then I'm thinking back and I'm like, I feel like all shows back in this time had longer opening credits and like way more th like thought out theme songs. Yeah. Bring I think it that's back. probably true. Yeah. I miss like theme songs. You know, I was, you know how, um, if you go back and watch like old Disney movies, like the really, really old ones, like the first Disney movies, mm -hmm. how they do the credits at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. 
it's it's like that where it's like why did we fall out of this tradition and suddenly like move away from like 20 minute theme songs it's, that took up the, the entirety it's the of the attention episode. span of people people's attention span is getting shorter and shorter i guess and so, so the yeah. theme song has to get shorter there's no words in theme songs hardly ever anymore and we're just gonna have like a they're all gonna be like a single keyboard note now it's just gonna be like boop and then it's the some <laughs> shows kind of are some shows just yeah. like put up a screen and then just start the episode but we're back on the scene of the crime with logan and grievy now and the cops are here and they say that the victims are janet and alan ralstead and wait is it ralstead or ralsten like with an n i kept you know getting confused sure. throughout the episode i think it was ralstead with a d but like I kept mishearing it. Anyway, so Janet and doesn't matter. Janet and Alan Ralston, and she is alive and she's recovering in a hospital, thankfully. But um, he is dead, and the wallets and belongings have been pilfered through, stolen, or missing. And so it looks like it's you know your general carjacking gone wrong, little burglary. They're asked if there's any witnesses to the crime, and the female cop says, "Yeah, thirty-two of them, all blind." What does that even mean? It means like no one's talking. No one wants oh. to talk. But it's oh, like Oh right. Like they're all playing blind, basically. Yeah, but guess what? They were kind of like all outside. Right. So like this let's happened chill. in a parking garage and nobody else was in there. At so. like three hey. in the morning. So as she hands him as she tells them this, she's handing him a warm crack pipe that was found in the stairwell. And the detectives are like, Okay, they get back outside. Um they start they start talking to the two girls that were with the heavy accent before. And um, I think they're well, in their in their leopard print hot skirt, e- um, uh, mini skirts. Yes, yes. It's like <laughs> it's like an episode of what not to wear for like people who are like just stuck in the past. They could be extras on an episode of um, Married with Children. Oh, like Friends of Kelly's. Totally, totally. They could be extras on. Uh, they could be doing the fashion show in um, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. <laughs> yes. Oh my god, it's ridiculous, but. Um, what I was going to say is like the New York accents are really heavy, but the isms are sort of like a little bit better. Like the way they're acting and talking is a little bit more. It's a far cry from, you know, we're in a bar having a pop or someone saying antibiotics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as I say, antibiotics would be a drag name, right? <laughs> yes. Antibiotics. Welcome to the stage. <laughs> So anyway, we discovered that, you know, they didn't see anything. Um, but then a drunk on the street behind them shouts and he's like, he was black. Oh, yeah. And they yeah. turn around and they're like, uh, I don't know if we could trust this guy. So Logan's like, hey, how many ha- how many fingers am I holding up? And he guessed it right. So they're like, uh, I mean, you know, it's something. Yeah, that's all they got, though. They they move on. So they were at the hospital now. And there's a doctor telling them that. uh telling them and then this gentleman that we learn is gil himes uh the couple's financial advisor he's telling them that janet's okay um defensive wounds mostly besides the gunshot wounds and gil tells us that she was mugged last year and wanted to move and have an- another kid and he tells detectives fifty thousand information leading to the arrest and conviction and Grievy says that if that's all it took they'd fire all law enforcement and turn their salaries into rewards yep <laughs> anyway <laughs> at the station uh captain craigan chastises them saying they need to work harder uh yeah and i kind of don't disagree no to be honest. and this was the first episode where i feel like captain craigan actually contributed besides being telling them the next obvious step yeah i think he is uh over it 
He think he's yeah. tired of being asked all the <laughs> the simple questions. Yeah. So he's like really uh, handing it to them, and then he leaves the room. And as he leaves the room, he like hits them with the door. <laughs> he, did <laughs> you notice that? that? He hits no. Creepy with the door. His whole body like shakes forward. I had to rewind it. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. And they must have just left it in and was like perfect. Um, <laughs> but I was like, damn, okay. He he's not messing around. He's not messing around. No. no, he's like drum up anything you can get, get any witness you can get, even the drunk. I don't care. Figure it out. So, they bring the drunk into the station, and he IDs uh, a suspect from two photos, two separate photo lineups, and they identify him as Willie Tivman. And mm. we know from watching that it is the guy that we saw sneak into the stairwell earlier. Yeah, and then he was seen fleeing the scene of the crime. Now, so, um, oh. I almost forgot to tell you this. I was looking at the cast of this episode, and there are a few standouts, I will say, um, okay. like some guest stars for the time. So the main character of Janet, she's played by Roxanne Hart, whose mom was a big Chicago fan, I guess. Uh, right. That was my immediate <laughs> thought when I looked at the cast list, too, because I've started looking at it now because I, after I found out about Erica Jane, I was like, I need to make sure I always look at the list so that I don't miss anybody I have to talk about. Yeah, I just was like, kind of like, I parse through the list and I click on any names that I obviously know. And then mm-hmm. um, I try to click on any people that looked familiar or as like a, a main character. And so right. she is, was really famous at the time. She was in Highlander, the movie before this. And she was in Chicago Hope, the TV show, like main character. Mm-hmm. And she was recently in How to Get Away with Murder. Yeah, she's definitely an actor that I recognize. Like the minute I saw her, I was like, I've seen her in other things, but I couldn't like figure out what it what it had been because it clearly wasn't something like ongoing. It was yeah. like, oh, I've seen her in things. Yeah, but, I mean, she was in How to Get Away with Murder for like two seasons, like as a feature, really? featured character. Like she was probably oh. in like seven or eight episodes, but um, she was Wes's biological grandmother. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, and then Gil. Okay, so I recognize his face, and then when I looked him up, I do not know this actor's name. I'm sorry, off the top of my head, but Bill Gill is played by Bob Gunton, if I'm pronouncing that properly. And I knew him by face, but he's been in, like, a ton of things. Huh. He was in Shawshank Redemption as a main character, Argo as a main character. He was a main star of 24. He was in the TV show Daredevil. It just, like, goes on and on and on. I was shocked. And uh, just a fun fact, I looked at just some of the fun side characters and mm-hmm. one of those girls in Leopard and oh, yeah. also the wino guy that they keep calling a wino, the drunk on the street. They yeah. both are featured in like five or six episodes of Law and Order as different characters. I know. I love that. And I love that right now they're like on the street as like looking like street thugs. And then yeah. I looked ahead and one of them is playing a judge for like four episodes. And then one is like a, <laughs> like a district attorney or something. Yeah. <laughs> so well, look how far they've come i wonder if it's like a a weird like a community of like extras on the show that they recycle and that have to like earn their way into the courtroom from the right, street yeah <laughs> anyway so back to the actual episode the um the labs got a clear fingerprint from the crack pipe and it matches willie and then they found a shell casing um no fingerprints or anything on that but it's from a beretta and his they look at willie's rap sheet and it's pretty long but it's pretty consistent um mostly like muggings and burglaries at knife point and lots of time in different facilities yeah so they notice that he's always in the same sort of area when he gets busted they visit him and he's selling like books on the street 
And there's sort of like this like undertone that he's not just selling books, but you know, no one's talking about it. And uh, when questioned about what he's doing out here selling these books on the street, he books it. Did you yeah. get it? He books it. I get it. I okay. get it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they get him. Um, obviously, they bring him in for questioning. And uh, when they know he his prints are on the crack pipe, he he knows he's got to like kind of fess up. So he says, "Yes, I was there, but I was just smoking in there." Um, he heard three gunshots, and he just got out of there. They don't believe him, and he's like, I better get myself a lawyer. So now we're back at the hospital, and the detectives are questioning a now-awake Janet. She is, She's on her side. She's not, yes. she's not facing them in the bed. And the camera doesn't immediately cut to her. She's just talking, and it, like, slowly pans. It is so melodramatic. It, yeah, and she's got like her oversized tinted glasses on. Mm-hmm. Oh no, she, not yet, she not as... yet. She's not wearing the glasses oh. yet. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Those are coming later. Yes. All right. But she's in like she's it's it's not a bad performance, I will say, but it is very it's very dramatic. So It's a lot, yeah. Yeah. And so she is recounting what happened and she says that, you know, everything we saw happened and then when he was getting the flowers out of the back of the car. He stopped to sort of get something from his pocket. And uh, she turned to look as he was going towards the stairwell. And uh, they saw a man come out. He was, she saw a man come out. He was black. She didn't see a gun, but she heard the shot and saw her husband's reaction like he'd been punched. Mm-hmm. And so they show her a photo lineup of six men. And she picks a different black man from the first row first uh, before they tell her to keep looking. And then she identifies Willie. Mm -hmm. on the second row it's not long before they're able to tie willie to eight burglaries at knife point in the area and so cragen thinks this is like a done deal um grievy's pretty suspicious though because he can't help but notice like the change in the mo like going from all these burglaries at knife point to suddenly being a murderer and killing right and logan thinks that because he was smoking crack he's a murderer and i just think i'm so glad you're on the squad yeah. So, so happy. Lo, well, remember the episode, the Subway Vigilante episode, it was very similar where Creevy, Grievy was kind of like critical of how Logan was to vilify the young black men. Right. And so it's kind of the same pattern that we're seeing here with the two of them. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember exactly, but I really hope there's a trajectory. I hope there's a mm-hmm. uh, path that Logan is on. That it, They're yes. all on, but particularly Lo- Logan at this point. Yeah. Uh, so they bring Willie before the judge and the and ADA Robinette, and his bail is set at one hundred thousand dollars. His public defender afterwards approaches Robinette and tells him, "Listen, um, he confesses to all the robberies, he, he all eight of them, but he didn't do this, and I've been doing this for a long time." And so you know we're we cut to a very classic expository scene of Logan and Grievy in like their friendly debate. You know, one feels one way, one feels the other, and we're going to hear about it now. This time they're doing it at a bar playing pinball. (laughs) (laughs) You know, very, very, you know, very realistic. I just can't usually wait to get on the pinball machine when I'm in a bar to blow off some steam. Fucking pinball is such an annoying game. It really is. Like, I always think I want to play it. And then after I put the quarter in and I've just like done one, I'm like, I don't even want to finish this quarter. All right. Just go down the the hole of lost just anyway. why do pinball when there's a skeetball machine probably somewhere else so or an air hockey table come on or like pac-man yeah they definitely had Whatever. pac-man back then right so anyway they're at the pinball machine um logan 
Logan's stance is that he thinks that Willie was fiending for drugs and he got real desperate. And so he just saw people that looked well to do and, and, you know, robbed them and things got out of hand. Grievy thinks that this doesn't make sense um, because he, he understands that this kid's like streetwise and, you know, he's got a, a record, but he's not a murderer and it doesn't add up that it's been three days and no one has tried to use the credit cards or bank accounts if, you know, that is in fact what was the motivation. Right. So Logan sort of agrees and they are, um, the next day they're back at Janet's and she is now in a sling and she's borrowed Valerie Harper's glasses from the 1975 <laughs> set of Rhoda. <laughs> so accurate. It is like, she's ready to be cast in like Woody Allen's first film. It's, 100%. Yes. And this is also shot incredibly melodramatic again. And is she smoking in this one? I feel like she is, but I forget. But if okay, she's not, I... she's got, it's that vibe. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So she says that Alan said that they weren't the kind to live in the suburbs. And Grievy's like, what kind is that? She goes, the kind that are still alive. <laughs> okay. Because you go to the suburbs and you die. <laughs> yeah. So she tells them the story again. Um, and it's verbatim. Word for word. Yep. yep. Very suspicious. And so... <laughs> <laughs> They go back and check in with Willie, who is behind bars at Rikers Island, and he says again he didn't do it. You know, the light in the stairwell went off, and he heard shots, and he ran. And they're like, okay, this is sort of new information. Let's go test out the theory. What's with the lights? So they're at the garage, and they check the light bulb, because um, it's out. And it has been just mildly unscrewed, and now mm. it works. So obviously this was deliberate, and I just think to myself, if I was a criminal— and I was going to try to get, make a light go out. I just smash it or throw it or something. But yeah. I, you know, clearly this is not a seasoned criminal though. So <laughs> anyway, they're at the station um, and they're digging deeper into the lives of those close to the Ralsteads, including themselves. They can't find much on her. Um, and then they find that Gil, their financial advisor, had a prior for public lewdness last January from getting roadhead at a toll booth. Mm. Oh, God. And I just thought, like, Jesus, like, you're at a toll booth. Yeah, not the time or place. No. So they have a real laugh about it, the two of them. Um, I'm not even sure how I feel about it. Like, I, I get it, but I don't. And uh, guess, you know, who was in his lap, they say. And it's a woman that was identified as Brenda, but who looked an awful lot like Janet. And what mm. were they driving? A Lincoln. So, mm. oh, and also, guess whose prints are found on the bulb? Gil. Lots of guesses. So it's all sort of starting to come together that this is more than meets the eye. So they want to reopen the case, and they argue with Cragen about it. Um, it's He's arguing that it's going to be a media, a media shitstorm, basically, if he's wrong about his hunch. And mm -hmm. he says, you know, just keep an eye on Janet for a little while and see what you can drum up. So they pull up on two undercover agents who've been um, trailing her, and I'm in love with the female agent in the car. <laughs> I don't remember her. Oh, my. She's got like the Sally Jesse Raphael sort of glasses, but you see okay. her mostly from the profile. And she's got sort of like that pulled back hair. She's like, okay, so she's like, um, 
she she speaks with like a Natasha Leone type of like cadence and attitude. Oh God, I love that. You know, like sort of like half out of the mouth and like kind of like yeah. she's telling you a secret. Trying yeah, to yeah, get, yeah. To insist on something, and so she's like, "Oh, this lady's got real." Real nice uh-huh. life, living pampered, uh-huh. and then they're oh, like, yeah. "Oh, yeah, exactly." And they're like, "Oh, nothing really." Like she hasn't done anything, and uh, he's like, "No, but I'm beginning to think my partner here worships the ground I walk on." <laughs> See what I'm saying? Right? <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. <laughs> um, so really love her, but there's nothing suspicious. Uh, so they get back to the station, and you like how I keep saying suspicious now. <laughs> I think the title of this episode might have to be "Nothing Suspicious." Nothing too suspicious. Everything. <laughs> So they get back to the station, uh, and they're talking to Cragen about it. And he's like, all right, give up. It's over. And they're like, no, no, no. You know, I really think I need more time. And he, they said on one more day, one more day. And then all of a sudden the call comes in. Janet and Gil have been seen at a hotel. Mm. Oh, boy. So the detectives show up and say, uh, I forget which one says, oh, I remember which one says which. Grievy says, what are they doing in there? It's four hours. And Logan goes, sir oh yeah she goes he goes what's she doing in there it's four hours and he goes serving her serving him clams casino and he goes looks like he ate well <laughs> god i can't <laughs> right and so grievy says this as gill uh exits the hotel and hops in a cab and leaves and shortly afterwards janet emerges and they approach her on the street and uh basically interrogate her right on the spot about the affair and uh, they basically tell her, like, you are in trouble, and I think you're too smart not to cooperate. And she gets very flustered, and she admits in this like f- these, like, frightened little bursts that um, she, she was having an affair, indeed, mm-hmm. and she broke it off with him, and he was enraged, and that's why he shot Alan and her. Dun-dun. It all comes out. So in the courtroom, yep. they're charging Gil with, um, they want to charge Gil with murder too. And his attorney is a smarmy, well-dressed upper crust man who arrogantly accosts the EADA in the hall and tells Stone he'll be lucky to get manslaughter. Um, it was a crime of passion, pure and simple. And uh, among the many, many other great lines that EADA Stone has in this, I couldn't write them all down. He's like, a crime of passion is never pure. and It certainly isn't simple. <laughs> just love him i really he's probably the standout my favorite character in the show right now stone oh yeah he's got such a weird way of speaking he that does everything, everything sounds very odd coming out of his mouth no matter what yeah it sounds like he uses like the smallest portion of his mouth to get the words out yeah um <laughs> so stone and robinette are now in their chambers interviewing janet who says they her and gill had a three-month affair and she she loved her husband though and she broke it off and she lied about it originally because you know he tried to kill her she was scared and so she said like in that moment when she saw him he was like a completely changed person and so they go to the home of milton and dorothy luck who are the people who threw that party the night in question and i'm just mm-hmm. thinking like hello wouldn't that now wouldn't yeah. that be like the first the first day well, like, Captain Cragen didn't tell them to do it, so clearly oh, true. they have no idea <laughs> true. what to do. <laughs> so um, the Monopoly man is back as Mr. Luck, and uh, <laughs> Mrs. Roper has stepped in as his wife. <laughs> goodbye. So it just seems like women in this in this episode, when they are at home, they're transported back into the 70s. Yeah. We've seen it twice now. So she's 
lounging around. I love this, love, love, love this character. And she says that the night was fine. Alan wanted to go at about midnight, but Janet wouldn't budge. Quote, 2.30, the queen wants to leave. Alan's got a second wind. She dragged him out here like she had a plane to catch. And yeah. <laughs> Milton just keeps telling her, like, Dorothy, Dorothy. And he's like, you've never liked her anyway. And she goes, that's because she's a bitch, darling. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that line. That was good. Uh, so I looked her up, and she will be in four more episodes of different characters. Yes, so don't worry. Yes. Um, thank God. So they take this information that they get at this party to to da schiff who wants them to try to id the gun somehow like that's the best next step and that there are um they discover that there are about five states that have sort of laxer gun rules and Mm -hmm. um we find out that the reason that schiff wants this case to go so well is because there's an election next year and we sort of see like the politics that are going on behind the scenes that we see throughout law and order and that we see unfortunately in in real life the real world yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, so, you know, he wants them to ID the gun somehow and, um, you know, he would hope that he can get her on the line for this somehow too, but you know, there's really nothing tying her to the crime other than she's been a liar. So they decide to to check on the finances of the couple and sort of like dig into their history and they discover a massive life insurance policy on Alan, nothing on her though. And so Mm -hmm. they speak to an agent at the insurance office who I also love and she says that this was like a wildly excessive type of policy. There are multiple on Allen. It's really uncommon for the wife not to be insured also. And she says, this is the exchange she has with Robinette. She says, this wasn't life insurance. This was the lottery. And he goes, Ms. Rasta hits the right number. And she goes, she collects $9 million. <laughs> like, like, so rapid. So good. Yeah. So in the DA's office, they start to, like, weigh out their options of how they're going to present the evidence and what they have and all that. And then the gun luckily comes back as being bought in Virginia from Tracy's Sports Shop. And it's registered to Allen. And they think that's kind of unusual. They wonder how they're going to play this because... They really don't have anything tying her to the crime and him to the weapon. But right. by saying, you know, and they say that uh, someone brings up that by her saying that he looked crazed, she's basically set up a diminished capacity defense for him. Mm-hmm. And so throughout the remainder of the episode, the two defense attorneys um, are essentially like engaged in this sort of like game of tennis with the DA's office. It's a lot of back and forth between her defense attorney and Gil's defense attorney and trying to figure out how we're going to like play this a lot. They're really playing a a good game of air hockey. (laughs) Oh, totally. Totally. So I will try to um, just give you the hot takes on that as we get to those moments. Okay. Because I can't. It's a lot. I don't want to make your head spin. (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, So Gil's attorney first says that there's no deal that they will take and they will never get him on anything past man two. And so they uh, take another shot at questioning Willie and they ask him to get like real specific. They want to know exactly what happened play by play. And he says he was smoking crack. The light went out. He heard a shot. The door opens two more shots. He left. And so there's like this next scene where there's like this really clever camera work that like pans around all four characters in like this really cool way that I just know mm-hmm. they felt really good about. Yep. And like the four principal cast members are there and they're gathered like all discussing this new revelation. And they discover that like, listen, if the door was closed when the uh, first shot went off, that means that she was probably the one who fired the gun. Mm-hmm. and they're like okay now we got we finally got something 
So they, uh, oh, where did I, what did I just do? Sorry, I scrolled like an idiot. Um, I got very excited and put my fingers too firmly on the, <laughs> on the track. Okay. So they realized like she must have fired the first shot. And so they arrest mm-hmm. her at her apartment and we're finally in court. And so Willie is on the sand and he's recounting the same information we heard from him, you know, just moments ago. Um, but when cross-examined, he's forced to say he's a crack addict with no job, an expensive drug habit, and they sort of insinuate again to him g- dealing drugs or being a, a petty thief in order to support his drug habit. Right. The um, There's a gunshot expert that says that Allen had been shot within three feet by someone shorter than him, but cross-examination proves that since the lot was sloped, it could have been someone Gill's height. So now we have uh, Tracy from the shop in Virginia – and where they got the gun and i had to do a double take because i fully believed it could have been jennifer robertson jocelyn from schitt's creek (laughs) oh my god i was like i "I don't know the age difference here like how it would work in time if this is her but it just styled just like her i think actually when i was watching it i was watching it with miles and he said okay jocelyn to something (laughs) she said I'm almost 90% sure that that happened. Oh, I had to do a double take. And I so I looked it up just to see. And this is a Tony Award-winning actress. Really? Yeah, her name is Faith Prince, and she is, like, a big deal. She's, like, a t- Tony Award-winning for, like, her role, not, like, just, like, ensemble or something. And she right. um, recently was Ursula in 2013, uh, okay. taking over for Jane Lynch. So, okay. Good for her. Here we are, guest Wait, stars. Jane Lynch played Ursula? That shocked me, too. Because she can't sing. I, yeah, I, can she? I don't guess I never no. heard her try. I mean, on Glee, she was oh, true. horrendous. <laughs> well, so seeing her as Ursula would be a big letdown for me. Yeah, well, hopefully Faith Prince was like the savior to take over, so. Let's hope. Yeah, and no offense, Shane Lynch, you're probably great, but. Oh, I love Shane Lynch for a lot of things, <laughs> yes. I just don't love her singing. <laughs> so. Yeah, so in any event, this woman on the stand uh, is a treat. She's a real treat, and, uh. She says that Janet was the one that kept pushing for the gun and that Alan didn't even want one in the house. He thought it was dangerous, but she insisted and she was all steamed up about it. So the next, you know, shot of the tennis ball brings us to a room with Janet's attorney. And we're uh, he's saying the worst thing she ever did was mention where her gun was. And they're willing to take two misdemeanors and she'll testify against Gil. No deal, though. Stone is like, no way. Schiff says, just do man two. Like, that's the uh, the best we're going to get. Go with it, because I, we need to get a conviction of some sort. But Stone, you know, he's got that integrity, and he doesn't want to, lo- like, he doesn't want to lo- just not lose this case. He just, he's not right. He doesn't feel good yeah, about it. Yeah, he wants to do the right thing. Yeah, he's too invested in, in it to, to just, like, let it go. And so he decides he's going to apply more pressure. So, you know, we're back in, you know, the tennis match is going on, and we are um, back with Gil and his attorney putting the pressure on him. And they tell him that Janet and her lawyer are trying to, you know, basically pin it on him in the courtroom. And they read her, they read him a quote that she said in a transcript that says about Gil, he turned out to be weak and pathetic and some other disparaging things. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And this rattles him enough to say, like, suppose the murder weapon should happen to turn up. (laughs) Right. And then Stone eventually is like, suppose we add obstruction. And then his attorney snaps back with suppose you never get the weapon suppose you never get the gun i don't know if this is how it really happens in real life but i certainly hope not 
I mean, probably not. Yeah. I hope. God. So Stone won't go down past Manslaughter 1, and they decline. And on the other side, we're back with Janet and her attorney. They reveal to her that Gil is willing to turn over the gun, the murder weapon. And so he offers man one, but they won't budge. And so he takes the offer off the table. He's like, going, going, gone, in this like very dramatic scene. And, yeah, then, and he's really gambling because his yeah. boss told him, like, just plea. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, they don't know that, but they probably can guess it too. So he's really, like, keeping a poker face here. Yeah. Um, and she says to him from across the table, you don't scare me, Mr. Stone. And he goes, oh, yes, I do, Miss Ralston. I scare you a great deal, and I should. <laughs> you did a, that was a pretty good impersonation of his voice, was by it? the way. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just, like, loved that moment. Yeah. It was really good. It was good. And I, I have to say, for as ridiculous and melodramatic as her scenes are and some of the writing, like she is a really substantial actress, I think. Yeah. Like yeah she's yeah. getting the point across really well. And now that we know that there's more to the story, it makes sense why all of her previous scenes were so melodramatic. Yes. Because, you know, she was playing it up. So, you know, he says, you, you know, you're scared of me, basically. And so uh, we're back with Gil and his attorney. They tell him she's willing to do some jail time now, but, you know, they'll do man two for him. And the DA says, um, you have to plead to man one. Like, he, he says, well, you know, his team says we'll do man two. The DA is like, no, man, man you one. You had your chance. And you have to produce the weapon still, and you have to tell us how you planned it. And yep. so he's like, listen, this is the deal. Whichever one, of, no more back and forth. Whichever one of you gets to me first, I'm taking it. So we cut to a scene now. The tennis match is over. Everyone's on the court. <laughs> so we got all uh, the defense. We got the ADA team, the DA team in the room, and we got both defendants and their attorneys. Janet is unfazed. Um, you know, they're all just waiting for someone to make a move. And Gil says, man, uh, I'll take man one. And she, like, eviscerates him right there in front of everyone. Yep. And I just thought this was a really full circle moment. Have you seen Chicago? The, the musical? Or the movie. Oh, the movie, for sure, yeah. Okay, do you remember Funny Honey, the song she sings at the beginning, when she's yes. talking about how she loves her husband, but then he confesses yes. and, like, lets it loose, and then she, like, yes. destroys him? Yes. This is very that moment. Like, it's very they that. were on the same page, and then he shot off his trap, <laughs> and then, like, she's all of a sudden flips, like, completely breaks character, and she's like, you're an idiot, you're so dumb, we wouldn't have been convicted of anything, and I thought, hey, this actress's name is Roxy Hart. Mm-hmm. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> Full circle moment. Full um, circle. And so, uh, you know, we were back in the courtroom after her blow up, and... Gil is testifying and he's, you know, laying it all out there. The mugging the previous year was a lie. It was just a setup as a means for to get Alan to buy a gun. She planned the whole murder. She told him that he'd have to shoot her afterwards to make it look believable. And uh, after she was questioned outside the hotel, she called him on the phone and basically told him, like, you know, we've been seen together you're going to be charged with something because of what i said but don't worry just fo follow along and just do whatever i say and her quote is and he says this very like tearfully because he really cares about her he really thought mm -hmm. like he did what he did his motivation wasn't money it was like love and like a life with her right um her motivation was clearly financial money. gain and like what <laughs> she wanted out of life you know she wants to go live in the suburbs yeah. And so he, she says to him on the phone, and he quotes her, you dumb SOB, you'll get man to and be out in two years. We'll have each other, she said. 
and the money. And then the courtroom sort of like stirs and we jump to the verdict. She's guilty of murder two and conspiracy one. And, uh, you know, she's clearly upset about this. Justice has been served. It's a, it's a real slam dunk. And then there, um, we have the ADA talking to, we have stone speaking to his boss and he's like, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's either evil or she's a two year old. She wants what she wants when she wants it. And that is the end of the episode. Uh, great job. Dramatic. It was a very dramatic episode with a lot of like, you know, you've mentioned, I specifically looked because you mentioned like, are we going to start seeing more like guest stars? Famous. Yeah. And while they're not like guest stars from t- right now, like I feel like some of these, especially her, like she was in a major movie the year before. Yeah. So like they were, they were names of the of the time yeah yeah exactly like they could have teased it and been like uh this episode starring you know roxy heart Heart? (laughs) so are you ready to hear the true crime that inspired this episode i'm so beyond ready i'm dying Mm. to know Okay, so it's definitely one you've heard although you might not necessarily know it right away okay Okay, so this, for the the research I got for this true crime, I got, uh, of course, you know, I'm going to stop saying it, I feel like soon, Wikipedia. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, Wikipedia is amazing. Donate to them so that they can keep running. Murderpedia, mm-hmm. uh, a really good Boston.com news article by a journalist named Roberto Sc- um, Scalese, C-A-L-E-S-E. Scalese? Yeah, that's what I would say. Um, the New York Times. And also, this was covered in My Favorite Murder, episode 143. Oh, okay. So this is an event that happened in 1989 in Boston, in the Roxbury neighborhood. And you might not be familiar with Boston in the way that I am after reading a couple of Wikipedia pages. (laughs) So let me just tell you a little bit about this neighborhood. Okay. So today, Boston refers to Roxbury as the heart of Black culture in Boston. And as of the most recent census, the Roxbury neighborhood is 57% Black, um, 81, or sorry, not 81, 8.1% White, and the kind of additional 35% are Latinx, multiracial, um, and API. Okay. This was at at that time or currently? This is currently. I tried to get census data from back then, but it wasn't easily accessible. But from what I read at the time, it was a more, like there was a higher percentage of white residents, but it was still like a very, very um, diverse area of Boston. Like there was a a really like broad cross section of identities in this area. Okay. I, I actually love Boston. I've never been to Boston, I don't think. Been to Boston, uh, like probably three three times three or four times um i actually almost moved to boston once (laughs) do you know what i do love about boston is in 30 rock yeah jack is from boston but he's like lost his boston accent and then um oh my god what's her name she was in the kids are all right she's super famous actress beautiful red laura linney no uh not redhead green eyes oh my god Uh, i see her in my head julianne moore Julianne Moore, okay. thank you. Yes. So she plays his girlfriend from Boston, and she does like the most over the top, <laughs> ridiculous Boston accent that I just love listening to her do. So anyway, that's that's my connection to Boston okay. is Julianne Moore doing a really bad Boston accent. I like it. Okay, this case was covered a lot. It's actually really, really widely covered. It it's like highly publicized. Anyway, we'll get into that. Okay. okay. So in 1989. A man named Chuck Stewart, 
uh, worked as a general manager for a, uh, like a fur shop, like a, a furrier, <laughs> as you may, as you might say. Oh. And he was pulling in six figures working as the manager of this fur shop. So I guess, I don't know, in 89, fur was still real big, I yeah, guess. lucrative. You know, in Boston, it gets cold there, right? It's very, 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 very cold. Okay. So he's working as the manager of a fur shop, and he's married to a woman named Carol. And Carol is a tax attorney, and so she's also making a pretty good income. So their family is doing really well financially. At the time of this incident, she is pregnant with their first child. Mm. So on the evening of October 23rd, 1989, Massachusetts State Police Dispatcher Gary McLaughlin um, receives a call from the car phone of Chuck Stewart, and he says, my wife's been shot, I've been shot. Okay, this is starting to sound familiar already. Okay, great. Uh, so Gary McLaughlin, who is the dispatcher, is on the phone with Gary, try, uh, sorry, not Gary, he's on the phone with Chuck, trying to get Chuck to say like where he is so that they can send the emergency services to get him to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And you can listen to portions of this 911 call because it ended up on an inside edition case or episode, I guess I should say. <laughs> yeah. And so the there's portions of the transcript you can read. There's portions of the call that you can hear online. So he's trying to get he, Chuck says to the dispatcher, she's still gurgling um, like she's like still alive, like straining for life. Um, cause she's been shot and he says like, uh, uh, there's a busy street up ahead. Like I can't see where I am cause he's also been shot. Um, he's like behaving like he's in shock. And so Gary, the dispatcher says, hang in with me, Chuck, just try to give me any indication of where you might be hospitals. Do you see any buildings? And Chuck is saying, I'm driving with my lights off. I can't like reach forward. It's too painful cause he's been shot in the stomach. And the dispatcher says, just tell me what street you're on, Chuck. And Chuck says, okay, I'm, I'm pulling over. I'm on Tremont Street. And Gary says, you're at Tremont. And Chuck says uh, that he's about to pass out. Um, it hurts so bad. And his wife has stopped gurgling. She stopped breathing. Mm -hmm. I remember this now. You I don't remember I, it now? I know the murder. I know the, the case. I don't remember, like, how it turns out exactly. But okay, I, I remember this story now. Okay, so emergency services arrive, and they see that Chuck has been shot in the stomach, and his wife, Carol, has been shot in the head. They take Chuck and his wife—or, sorry, they take Chuck to Boston City Hospital, and he undergoes over six hours of surgery to save his life. So mm -hmm. he was really injured by this gunshot. Carol was rushed to Brigham and Women's Hospital nearby— um, because that's where they had actually been coming from. They were leaving a birthing class at the hospital because, again, she's pregnant with her first child. And that's where they were just minutes before this shooting happened. Yeah. Did you already say or, or do you know how, how far along she was? Um, I want to say she uh, was like eight months. Uh, oh, no, I'll, I know that actually um, I'm about to say. So oh. the doctors <laughs> delivered her son. <laughs> so the doctors delivered her son. Okay. Um, two months early. So I guess about seven months okay. along, maybe seven to eight. And um, at 3 a.m. on October 24th, Carol dies from her injuries. Ugh. So she does not make it. So sad. On October 28th, four days later, Carol is buried in Medford, Massachusetts, and her service is attended by over 800 people, including the mayor of Boston and the governor of Massachusetts. And at the funeral, um, during at, at the time of the funeral, Chuck is still in the hospital uh, struggling to survive, but he managed to write a eulogy for Carol. Um, he wasn't able to attend the service, but the eulogy that he wrote was read, and I will read it for you now. 
He says, good night, sweet wife, my love. God has called you to his hands, not to take you away from me or the happiness and gladness you brought me, but to bring you away from the cruelty and the violence that fills this world. He said that for us to truly believe, we must know that his will be done. His, sorry, his will was done, his being capitalized, and that there was some right in the meanness of acts. In our souls, we must forgive this sinner because he, capital H-E, would too. My life will be more empty without you, as will the lives of your family and friends. You have brought joy and kindness to every life you've touched. Now you sleep away from me. I will never again know the feeling of your hand in mine, but I will always feel you. I miss you, and I love you. Your husband, Chuck. Yuck. <laughs> you don't like it? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. It is okay. dripping. Like, <sighs> where is the personal, like, your wife your yeah. wife is yeah. dead. You watched yeah. her die, essentially. You watched yeah. the love of your life die, and she was carrying your baby, and you could have thought your baby was dead, too. And you're giving... This is the eulogy or the um the obituary? This is the eulogy. The eulogy. You're giving That he eulogy. wasn't able to be there for, but he wrote it. Right. And this Which, is what you write. It's like showing off your like writing skills. It's not for her at all. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, stay in those feelings. On November 9th, so this is just a, a few days later, Carol's son, who they delivered, who was named Christopher, who was delivered emergency C-section style, uh, <laughs> dies of resp respiratory failure. So uh. he was just 17 days old when he passed away. So uh, Chuck's wife and now his newborn child have uh, both died. Oh, gosh. So according to the information police got from Chuck, what happened was they were at this stoplight and a man forced his way into their car and robbed them. He said the assailant was a black man in a black running suit, about six feet tall and 30 years old. The Boston Globe writes at the time, investigators say they are convinced that the gunman either lives in or routinely commits crime around the Mission Hill housing project. Some police sources believe the assailant probably has committed several, several similar robberies by jumping into stopped cars at intersections. So this case makes national news, and Boston goes fucking apeshit. Like, they lose their senses over this. <laughs> um, across the country, the story was portrayed as an example of what could happen to affluent people traveling through, quote, bad neighborhoods. Oh, God. So more than 100 additional officers were assigned to scour the Mission Hill, Roxbury, and Mattapan districts or, or neighborhoods of Boston, searching for anyone who fit this vague description, which is a six-foot-tall black man. So that could be, like, literally, I don't 25% of the population of this area of Boston. Right. So he was black, and he had a raspy voice, and he was wearing a black sweatsuit with red stripes is what they had to go off of. As he tried to rob the couple, he apparently says to Chuck, so Chuck says that he's robbing them, and then he says, looks at Chuck and says, you're 5-0. Essentially, Chuck is saying that he thought I was a cop, and that's when he shot both of them. Interesting. So the Boston police began to comb the housing projects in these neighborhoods, and uh, according to this article from the Boston.com website that I got some of this information from, a lot of black men were just like strip searched on the streets on any sort of pretense that they might be connected to this crime or 
uh, meet the description or might know who was involved. So you just know that this led to all kinds of not only like harassment and, and just hassling the black community, but you know that it also led to all kinds of unjust arrests oh, and I, searches and, and all so kinds many of shit like, like that. incarcerations that didn't need to happen. Like so many totally, people yeah. being pinned on things just to like make a statement. Right. So what's really infuriating about things like this is when these people like place blame on a community uh, like in such a vague way uh it like they don't realize the horror that they're unleashing on these communities that they are vilifying like so many people were just harassed and violated, treated super unfairly and, and violated by the police as a result of this description this vague description that uh chuck has given to the police and it was probably largely being applauded by the public. Like people were oh, yeah, just, being just having their rights taken everything away and and being completely violated on the street just for virtue of being there. Let's not even talk yeah. about the trauma that many of these right. people that that these people of color have to now go home and then live with for the rest of their life. Let's not even talk yes. about how it reinforces the fears that they've been told about from their parents since they were little yep. kids. Let's not even talk about all of that kind of trauma like yeah. outside of the the physical and like the being arrested. I ugh. I can't yeah. even. I, I'm. You said just you wait, so I can't even wait. To I, see yeah, what just you wait because I've got some some choice uh, excerpts from some news articles for Great. you. Great. So Leslie Harris is a public defender who was kind of like uh, involved with the case and really familiar with it. She was quoted as saying, um, "Actually, I don't know Leslie's gender." So uh, they were quoted as saying, "The police kept telling the kids that they'd have to come take a ride with them." And the way they intimidated these kids into making statements, some heads should roll. So, again, essentially, there are people witnessing the harassment and intimidation that the Black community experienced in the light of this incident. Yeah. So while the police are cracking down in these neighborhoods and politicians are, like, vowing to bring vengeance back, vengeance back to the justice system. Oh, finally, what we've been missing Right, is some good vengeance. Yeah. Um, the veneration of Charles Stewart, Chuck Stewart, really just goes hog wild as well. So the first responders who worked to save his life praised his concern for his wife's well-being, like when they arrived. The Boston Globe editorial hailed his, quote, gallant calls for help the night of the shooting. And newspapers are comparing this couple to the Kennedys oh and talking about, like, gosh. dreams of Camelot. So they're selling this, like, really ideal picture of these people's lives being shattered by this unsuspecting crime against two nice white folks. Right. And I, I still don't know what's going to happen, so I'm having a hard time, like, how I feel Deciding about... where to land. <laughs> yeah, but, like, I just my gut, my gut is telling me just, you know, and, you know, the episode of the show is just telling me that, like... He is just not a good guy. Okay, I'm going to try not to spoil anything for you. The news is already sort of vilifying, uh, as they have and continue to do today, vilifying a lot of Black communities, automatically making these associations of Blackness with criminality. Mm -hmm. And the I think that the police chief at the time refers to how they will hunt down the animal who committed this crime. So really just charming, super, super racist bullshit that's happening in the, in the news. Right. Totally acceptable to people, too. So... While a candlelight vigil in Carol's honor is taking place in Mission Hill, 
um, community leaders, uh, black community leaders, are uh, worried that these this white couple who were involved with this crime are being valued more by city leaders than the members of the black community who have been victimized for years, right? So they're pointing out like, hey, you don't care this much when it's us dying and and you're vilifying us for this crime based on very little evidence at this point. And so city councilor David Scondras was quoted as saying, you can't help but wonder if what you're watching is a class situation, that it's all right for the poor to put up with an enormous amount of shootings and killings, but presumably if you're white, upper income, and suburban, maybe that changes things. That's sad. <laughs> no shit, oh that's God. sad. Yeah. Uh, so the first suspect that the police kind of homed in on was, um, his name was Alan Swanson. You may be shocked to hear that he was their main suspect because he was a homeless black man who owned a black sweatsuit. Case closed. Uh, is he, I hope they just put cops on him immediately. I'm sure, I'm sure they did. So <sighs> he was held for three weeks in custody as the police sought to connect him to this crime and just essentially sort of like brought various charges against him as a way to continue to hold him under these questionable circumstances. So he was just taken off the street, put in jail for three weeks with really like bogus bullshit charges as a way to continue to hold him until they were able to tie him to this crime, right? And it's so fucked up to think about our evidence didn't lead us to this man. We found this man. Now let's go find the evidence that leads us to him right that is so backwards and fucked up like oh my god yeah so he was released however when the police started to focus on another suspect and this was a black man named willie bennett which remember the black man in in the law and order episode was named willie yeah they really borrowed liberally from the reality for this case So Willie was about the right age and height, and he had a raspy voice, and he did have previous charges, including two shootings. So they were suspecting that he's kind of good for this. Um, And he was arrested after his nephew, like, jokingly bragged that his uncle was responsible. So, like, total hearsay, but they still, like, are convinced this has got to be him. And on December 28th, they put him into a lineup and bring Chuck Stewart in to identify who, whether one of these men is the man who supposedly shot him and his wife. And when they show Bennett in the police lineup, Stewart has like a a strong physical reaction. Hmm. That lineup, however, was Bennett. And as Roberto Scalese refers to the other men in the lineup, the others were all clean cut Boston police officers. And so it, it's not stated outright, but it's implied that there was such a visual disparity between mm-hmm. Willie Bennett and the other men in the lineup that it was sort of like evident who Chuck should be identifying in this moment. Right. But this is where we get a really big twist in the case. Okay. So seeing that Willie Bennett is likely to go down for this shooting, Matthew Stewart, Chuck's brother, tells police that he had been involved in assisting his brother that night. He told them that he thought he was helping Charles with an insurance scam because he met Chuck and took Carol's bag, her jewelry, and the gun away from the car. Oh my In gosh. return for immunity, Matthew testifies against his brother. So Matthew, his bro- Chuck's brother, was involved in this. He was given the gun and Carol's jewelry and all of that and uh, told to just dispose of it. So he goes and throws it in the river. So 
Matthew's lawyer says that his client had driven into Boston by prearrangement with Chuck to meet him near the hospital and to pick up the 38 caliber revolver as well as her jewelry and handbag. And he thought at the time that his brother was only planning some kind of jewelry insurance scam. Okay. Which I'm sorry. I love my brother deeply. If he called me and said, hey, let's do a, a, a robbery jewelry scam so I can get some insurance money. Absolutely fucking not. Like, no, no. under no circumstances. No. <laughs> no. And if I if I ever got, like, uh, suckered into doing something, like, disposing of blah, 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 if it wasn't yeah. something that would rot, I would absolutely not dispose of it. <laughs> Correct. No yes. way. So Chuck had apparently offered Matthew $10,000 for assisting him with this supposed what he thought was a jewelry scam. So everybody in Boston, when they hear this, does like the Scooby-Doo sound of disbelief (laughs) because this story of like tragedy of like the Kennedy-esque Stewart's being shot and, and her killed and their baby passing away suddenly becomes this story of betrayal and premeditated murder. Mm, salacious right so under guarantee of immunity matthew tells police that he was up to something but he knew charles was up to something but he didn't know or think that he was going to kill carol that the two brothers had met the night of the shooting he took the bag and threw it into the off the side of the dizzy bridge which by the way dizzy bridge does not that doesn't install instill confidence i don't want to cross a dizzy bridge absolutely not (laughs) who would ever go on a dizzy bridge it sounds like uh like a mario kart round It does. Okay. (laughs) So now relatives and law enforcement officials are saying that Chuck may have been consumed by his own rapid financial success. So he was a man who had gone from being a short order cook uh, just a decade ago, making $4 an hour to the manager of this fur salon on Newbury Street, earning more than $100,000 per year. (gasps) So in the days that followed, news surfaced that Charles, Chuck, sorry, um, had received life insurance payout payouts to the tune of another like eighty to one hundred and eighty thousand dollars on Carol's life. Jesus. So he had taken out life insurance policies on Carol <laughs> and Charles, still free and innocent, and all of that at this point, um, decides to take that money and buy a new car. Of course, you know that's what you do with your grief money is you buy a new car. Of course, it's like when you give uh, um, when you give the person who gave birth to your child a push present. This is like Mm -hmm. the same thing, like celebrate life that way. And then you celebrate death this way. Yep. Delightful. So Chuck, uh, meanwhile, in all of this, being a complete fucking idiot, was showing unusual interest in a young female coworker. And when he was in the hospital, you know, called her and asked him to call him while he was recovering. (sighs) But the detectives who were so fixated on finding this black perpetrator that Stuart had described, Roberto Scalese says uh, they didn't bother to find the ample evidence that Stuart was unhappy in his marriage and upset with his wife for not having an abortion. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Stuart had apparently discussed his obsession with his coworker, this young woman, and his desire to see his wife dead with several friends and family members in the months before the murder. Who are the people in your life? Like, right. Take a look around the room and I would, that is not, Oh my god. That's not gosh. cool. No. Like, it, do me a favor. If if Miles ever starts talking about how he wants to see me dead, can you just give me a little heads up and uh like <laughs> Yeah, I'll just I'll just tip you off. Yeah, <laughs> like, thank just, you. I won't be I won't make it obvious, you know, because yeah. I don't like to, to spoil things. But Surprises, I, um, yeah. I'll definitely yeah, I'll give you like a little bit of a, you know, 
But fuck, like, what friends and family members hear somebody say, like, I wish my wife was dead and, and I, doesn't do anything? Right. I wish my wife was I dead. Mean, I wish my unborn child was dead. I don't want a baby. And I wish right. I could I wish, sleep with my coworker. Right. Uh, yeah. And I like, think I would have said oh. something to Carol at that point. Yeah. You know, it's just, but I guess it's that thing, too, of, like, uh, you know, um, they talk about the woman who worked with Ted Bundy at the oh, suicide right, hotline, right. how... You just never see it coming, right? Like you never yeah. s- suspect that this person would do something like that to you. So anyway. yeah, that's true. Like I, you know, I'm not trying to be a, a bully to these people. Like I would not know what to do if I was put in that situation, of course. And we don't know how they came to find out about it. If it was just like casual conversation or like a right. tearful or like confession a- in the middle of the night and like yeah. talk me off the ledge a moment, you know? So exactly. But yeah. So who knows? Rough yeah. though. Really rough to know that so many people knew. So Chuck finds out that his brother Matthew is going to turn him in and he immediately leaves town. He just flees. So the police are hunting for him. They're trying to track him down. So while this is happening, Chuck has left town and he takes his new car and he drives out of town and checks into a Sheraton motel in a town called Braintree. Oh, I know Braintree. And Oh, do you? Yeah, I have. I had a friend that worked in Braintree and lived there. Small world. Yeah. And he requests a wake-up call for 4.30 a.m. the next morning. The next morning, calls start to come in, reporting a Nissan Maxima stopped on the bottom level of the Tobin Bridge with its um, hood propped open. When the police arrive, they uh, f- identify the car as belonging to Chuck Stewart, and on the note is a passenger seat... Uh, sorry, on the... <laughs> let me start all of this over when the police arrive at a few minutes before 7 a.m they identify the car as belonging to charles stewart and they see a note on the passenger seat stating that he could not bear the allegations against him and so police are thinking maybe this is a hoax uh we don't know where he is but they end up finding his submerged body in the river below the bridge and confirmed that Chuck had indeed jumped to his death from the Tobin Bridge into the Mystic River. Oh, my God. So Willie Bennett, after this, was then released, after witnesses told a grand jury that the police had pressured them into identifying him. So, again, Willie Bennett being held under custody was being justified by coercion, essentially, and intimidation for people saying that they could connect him to the shooting. So now they find out that all of that is bullshit. And I was not able to read anything about how that, say, triggered uh, investigations into the police conduct or anything like that. But at least Willie Bennett went free. Yeah. So it turns out that Chuck was just a piece of shit who killed his wife for money and (sighs) looped his brothers into his scheme. And comparisons to this case were made to the Central Park jogger case involving the Exonerated Five. Um, Kind of immediately people are making that same connection of police corruption, targeting of the black community, etc. Yeah. So a vicious round of finger pointing begins as prosecutors, the police, and news media begin tracing all of the trails of faulty assumptions, disregarded suspicions, blunders, and lies that had been put out that put the wrong man at the center of this really highly publicized case and really emotionally charged uh, murder, uh, one of the most kind of emotionally charged cases in the city's history. I would argue there's probably a lot more, but they probably were not white people, and so it didn't get as much attention. Yep. 
So those who led the, I'm quoting this because I would never use this word, those who led the dragnet through Ah. Boston's black neighborhoods and who pointed fingers at anyone in a black sweatsuit started looking for cover. Um, Mayor Flynn apologized to the Bennett family, telling Mrs. Bennett that, quote, what has taken place has been very unfortunate, which sounds just like every fucking serial killer or murderer where they're like, I'm sorry for the things that happened. Not, I'm sorry I did these things. A f- false fucking apology. Of, I'm sorry, things, unfortunate things happened. Taking right. no responsibility for Unfortunate. Them. Yeah, so Mayor Flynn refused to stay more than a couple of minutes with the Bennett family and wouldn't even sit down when offered a seat. When pressed <laughs> about his role, Mayor Flynn said... I said everybody owes an apology to the Mission Hill neighborhood, to the black community, and they all owe an apology to the people of the city. We should all stand in line waiting for that apology. I'm sorry, you don't deserve an apology. Why are you standing in line waiting? Seriously. Fuck off, dude. Fuck all the way off. Disgusting. So Roxbury community activist um, Sadiqi Camborn told the Boston Globe, Race is the primary issue in this situation, as the mayor and Boston police, with racist attitudes, reacted emotionally to the report that a white female had been murdered by an African male, uh, which is a a story that we hear over and over again throughout history and continue to hear again. Some some officials, though, um, just doubled straight down on their racism, and I won't even read the quotes that they say because they are so disgusting and victim-blaming. Of course they are. Chuck Turner, a community organizer in the Roxbury neighborhood, stated, Black people in particular have to look at it and wonder what hope we have for justice in a country that took this man's lie and made him and his family a symbol of national mourning. And that Mm -hmm. is the story of the murder of Carol Stewart that inspired this episode of Law & Order. Wow. That was something else. The whole thing is just so awful and so difficult to pull apart but i will just stick by my statement that uh chuck stewart was a piece of shit and (laughs) carol deserved a lot more and the black community deserved a lot more than um a lot more justice and a lot more fairness that then than they got yeah oh so that's that's the uh, um that's the true crime yeah, I never would have guessed that one, but I, I totally remember it from my favorite murder. I think I've probably seen like a Dateline or, or some some show about it on ID for sure, because I remember probably. hearing the the call. I feel like I also remember hearing someone read that eulogy um, oh, yeah. on his Mi- behalf. Uh, I went and uh, even though I was just talking about how I've, um, I'm not listening to my favorite murder at the moment because I have just re-listened to all 240 episodes. <laughs> I went back and re-listened to that story and Karen retells it and she reads the eulogy as well. Mm-hmm. And George's reaction is very similar to yours where she's like, well, I guess you caught on pretty quickly that you didn't like the way he was writing it. She was like, she was like, oh, I want to feel bad for him, but I just, I really think he did it. And Karen says, I would stay in that uncertainty for a moment if I were you. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that's that's how I felt. I felt like sort of on the fence, but I just figured um, it sounded familiar enough. The 911 call is what made it sound familiar. And I remembered a story where like the 911 call, that's always the kicker. Like, yeah, it's always the kicker if it's real or not. Like how that 911 call goes down and like the the moments immediately afterwards. And I remembered yeah. the story of someone who was not being, cl- not that it's the first time this happens, but yes. not being yes. clear about their location and sort of like circular talking and, you know, so, yeah. and plus, I mean, the episode of Law and Order, 
it ended up being the spouse. So totally, I yeah. I was I was <laughs> the in suspicion there with was it, you know was making sense. Yeah, yeah. I guess, and I do see the parallels obviously now, but I never would have made them had it been the other way around by just watching yeah. the episode. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, so this was episode five, and we are officially live and launched. So I'm so excited. I know, I can't believe it. Please, if you have enjoyed these episodes, please subscribe. Please rate us and review us. That will really help other people find us and uh, ensure that we can keep this podcast going. So um, do those things. Share it. Uh, You can find us on social media at Ripped Headlines on Twitter and Instagram. And you can email us at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. Yes, please reach out to us. Send us um, any feedback you have, positive, negative, whatever. Uh, send us any recommendations you have, any corrections you may have had on things we've said, anything we may have missed from the episodes, from the true crimes, anything you, you know, basically just just talk to us because we really yeah. like talking to you. And if you know Erica Jane or Erica Jane, if you're oh. listening and you want to tell us about your experience of being one of the first guest stars on episode one of Law & Order, we would love to have you on. <laughs> if we could have the pretty mess on our show and Dream. I I couldn't yeah. nothing would delight me more alright well until next time yes until next time thank you so much and see you later bye bye